Okay, well, welcome, and everybody, uh, feel free to come on in. Make sure you grab a handout. There's uh, handouts there on that stand as you come in, if you didn't grab one. Um, the theme for our Sunday School class this fall is um, the doctrine of the church. So we've been talking initially here on just trying to answer the question, what is the church? And so this is kind of the kind of high high-flying theology part of this class, but we're going to be getting into, you know, on the basis of what the church is, here is what our mission is. Here's what we're supposed to be doing. And we're going to be talking about practical things like, okay, the Lord's given us the sacraments, or He's given us church officers. How are those supposed to work? How are we supposed to, what, do the, what does the Bible say about those things? But here initially, we're just talking about what is the church, and I, I should say uh, today, um, fire hose warning. <laughs> um, this is sort of my attempt today to kind of grab in one big armful at a somewhat high level as many angles as I can that the scriptures give us on the church. And it's really important that we try to hold together everything um, that the Bible says about any topic. Uh, but especially the church. And the illustration one of my profs gave me back in seminary days, which I always thought was a really good one, was thinking about, um, in this case, it was the doctrine of God. Um, so you have who God is, and you can imagine that, like, we don't have, we don't have like, direct access to the being of God in the sense of, like, knowing him in some kind of unmediated way. Uh, we're creatures. Um, only God knows himself exhaustively. And yet, at the same time, God has given us inspired, accurate windows into who he is. If you imagine this is like a house, and you have these windows that are surrounding the house, um, the windows are different truths about who God is, different even metaphors about who God is. And when you look through the window, you see an aspect of who God is. You see, for example, God is a warrior, um, a man of war, literally, is what it says in Genesis or Exodus 15. Um, we see that God is our Redeemer, the one who buys us out of slavery. That God is our Creator. And we could go on in all these different things. Um, and there's many more than just four. <laughs> but um, the point is, you want to get all of these together. Like, if you, if you look in at the window of, say, who is Jesus, and you say, Jesus is a man... Obviously, that's true. But if that's all that you say, uh, that's a heresy, right? Um, and, the, and don't forget, Satan quotes the Bible, right? But he quotes selectively, and he tells you half-truths, right? Um, you need to say that Jesus is not just fully man. He's fully God. Now we're getting the big picture. So our method for today is we want to put together all the pictures of, in this case, the church is our question. What is the church? We want to put all the pictures together kind of like a collage. Um, you know, you have all the pictures, and what do you get with the collage? You get something you don't get with each picture individually. Um, so uh, one other point before we start diving into each of these pictures, um, and it's this, that sometimes the pictures reveal whole storylines, um, like there's a running metaphor. So the bride is one where we'll see um, there's a running storyline here, um, and that when you pay attention to when this metaphor comes up, you'll find a really extraordinary storyline that answers what is the church. 
So let's begin by looking at some of these pictures, because we have a lot of pictures to look at. The first is that the church is God's kingdom. Now, I was a little uh, torn here about whether to use this as one of the pictures, because there's a sense in which this is very literally true, like there literally is a kingdom. Uh, It's not so much a metaphor as it is just this is literally what we are, but it also has a metaphorical flavor in the sense that we know what a human kingdom is like, and that human kingdom helps us understand the divine kingdom. And how, do, how does this metaphor play out? And uh, this is another thing about metaphors is often there's a metaphor world. So, you know, um, uh, again, another one of my profs used to say, um, you know, in Psalm 1, um, the, uh, the godly man is like a tree, right? And so um, people are plants, but who's the farmer? Who's the one who transplanted the tree to the nice spot? Well, it's God, right? So the Lord is a farmer, people are plants. The Lord is a farmer part is implied by the people are plants metaphor. And so when we say the church is God's kingdom, how does that metaphor play out? Well, each Christian is a citizen of the kingdom of God. So let's just look at Philippians 3, where Paul is saying um, here, wanting us to know our identity and reminding us, Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our citizenship is in heaven. Now, this didn't um, mean that Paul, like, denied the fact that he was a Roman citizen, which he said elsewhere, but he's talking about our ultimate citizenship. Where does the ultimate loyalty belong? Well, to Jesus as the king of the kingdom. And what's so extraordinary in this kingdom is that it is not just for the people of Israel, but as you see there in Psalm 87, um, if you want to turn there with me, this is one of my favorite Psalms. This is, this is really amazing stuff. It's talking about glorious things of you are spoken, city of our God. And now Psalm 87, verse 4. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon. Rahab is a poetic name for Egypt. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. Realize what this is saying? Of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. Which is the this one and that one? Anybody? It is us. But in the context of the psalm, what, what, what was just referred to? Yeah, the people of Egypt, the people of Babylon, the people of Philistia, Tyre. These are like the sworn enemies of God's people. And it's saying, Zion, glorious things of you are spoken. In you, Zion, Jerusalem, guess who's going to be the citizens? The nations that formerly were your enemies. Again, you think the Old Testament is like just about like Israel, you know? No, it's about the nations, right? Um, so in this kingdom, this glorious kingdom of God, um, we have nation. All nations can be citizens, and that's the what's really revealed in um, the New Testament. Ephesians two, it's talking about the barrier wall being broken down between Jew and Gentile, and it says. In Ephesians 2.19, so then you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but look at this, you, Gentiles, are fellow citizens with the saints 
and members of the household of God. In other words, Jew and Gentile are citizens of this kingdom. And what, what do we have to take care of? Remember, every kingdom has a realm. What's the realm that we have to take care of? Well, this old creation for now, but ultimately, what will we be taking care of? It will be the new creation, the new Jerusalem, which is our inheritance and our, our home, right? We're looking forward to our home coming down out of heaven. And so there are some related metaphors here. Um, the church as a nation, the church as a city. We're going to talk about the church as a city a lot, um, hopefully next week. Um, but these are all connected to the church as a kingdom. So I have a couple of practical payoffs, and this is one of the reasons why we're going through all of these metaphors is like when you get the metaphor, you start to understand who you are, and that leads to practical good implications for how we should now live. But um, you know, you, you could look there on what I, I thought of, but uh, what, what are some, as you're thinking about the metaphor, okay, this people we call the church is a kingdom. What are some practical implications of that, about how we should live? There's lots of, lots of payoff here. Yeah, we're victorious no matter what's going on in the world. It's not just that we're a kingdom. We are the ultimate kingdom, right? So uh, kingdoms rise and fall in this world. Um, Rome was this great and amazing kingdom, and there were even Christian emperors like Constantine. Um, but eventually it fell, this, this seemingly invincible like entity that was so politically strong eventually fell. Um, kingdoms rise and fall, but the church will forever stand and Um, When this whole world, which is called the kingdom of Babylon in Revelation, when it it falls, um, we will still stand. Yeah, good. Other thoughts about what does it mean to be in a kingdom? Yeah, we're subjects of the king. It means we have to obey, right? Um, Sadly, there are some very, very uh, not good, deviant Christian teachers out there who will tell you, oh, you know, you're justified by faith, so that means you don't have to obey anymore. Um, Well, you are justified freely as a gift by faith, so you can then obey, (laughs) right? Um, Honoring Jesus as Savior means you honor him as king, too. Um, We need to honor what he tells us, live according to his rules. I have a couple more. Um, He is king over every authority, so if you know, the government of America tells you to do something that goes against what the government of Jesus tells you what to do. Well, we know who our ultimate king is, right? Um, Same thing with your employer, right? Um, We have unity across international borders. So, yes, there are these international borders, these borders between countries, but we should know that the church spans beyond that, right? And I have there, Jesus renews all of life. Um, Part of what we have to remember when we talk about the kingdom of God is that, yes, the church is the kingdom. This is like the center of the kingdom of God. But what does Jesus reign over? Absolutely everything. Remember, all authority in heaven and on earth. So not just the physical realm of the world, but the entirety of the spiritual realms as well is under Jesus' kingship. And Hebrews 2 says, you know, he is king over everything. All authority has been put under his feet. We don't yet see all things under his feet. Um, But he is the rule of everything. 
And so there's a sense in which the kingdom is bigger than the church, too. Um, and that's um, part of the glory of what we have to look forward to is one day God will be all in all, and the rule of Jesus will be openly acknowledged in all areas. Um, that's what will happen when he returns. Yeah, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is the king. Yes. So, um, and yeah, Jesus rules all of life. You know, um, the great Kuiper quote, there's not a square inch of all of God's dominion where Jesus does not say, mine. So Jesus is the king of your music preferences. Jesus is the king of how you spend your money. Jesus is the king of your marriage. Jesus is the king of how you do your school and, and everything, you know. So um, everything needs to be offered to the king because he is legitimately the Lord of everything. And the Bible talks about everything, even if it doesn't get super specific about every area. Um, even though the Bible had no idea, like the people at that time had no idea about iPhones, um, if you understand love of God and love of neighbor, it's going to impact how you use your iPhone um, or don't use it, as the case may be. Okay, let's do the next metaphor, and it really builds on the previous one. The church is a company of sojourners in a foreign land. We are exiles and strangers. And I love this quote from First Chronicles 29 where David is like at the pinnacle of his kingship. He's about to pass off the kingship to Solomon. He's like ridiculously rich. And he says in this prayer before God, says, who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer ourselves to you willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. And then verse 15, this is the kind of the punchline where he says to, to God, for we are stranger, strangers before you and sojourners. As all our fathers were, our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. So here's David saying, look, on earth, this is like an, a sojourning. What's a sojourning? It's when somebody, sort of like, you know how Abraham left his, his homeland, and he went and he dwelt in the, the land of promise, but did he own any land there? I mean, he bought that one per, burial ground for for his wife, right? But basically, no, right? He's living in somebody, another nation's land. It's not his. And he's there long term, but not in the sense of like putting down roots in the sense of being a citizen in the full long-term sense of the word. In the same way, we are exiles and strangers, wanderers on the earth. We don't belong here to this old creation city. And that's a good thing because Babylon is doomed for destruction. You don't want to be, um, you don't want to be part of the old creation city in the ultimate sense of like, this is where my entire identity is and where I belong. Of course, we can be a citizen of this, this wonderful land of America and be very thankful for this country. We want to build it up. It's part of how we love God, love neighbor, um, is by caring for our country. But at the same time, we're saying, Where's our ultimate identity? Where's our ultimate citizenship? In heaven, not here. And there are other metaphors connected to this. Uh, the church is a holy colony on the earth. So you imagine like heaven has come down. It's colonizing the earth. Um, Jesus has come to lead an invasion. He is the spearhead of an invasion of the old creation. Here's this doomed, lost humanity. All these people who are citizens of the of the kingdom of Babylon, are they all going to tank? Are they all going to go down with Babylon? Well, praise the Lord, all of us here were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. 
right? So we were citizens in the ultimate sense of Babylon, and now we've been made part of the family of God. We are we're the remnant, God's chosen remnant from a lost humanity. I was just reading a book about, uh, a fiction book about, like, the lost city of Atlantis, and, and just this picture of, like, you know, here's this island um, land, and it's about to be destroyed with fire from heaven, and um, what happens? A small group are brought out from the destruction. We are that tiny remnant that is being brought out and has found the narrow gate, which leads to life. So what are some practical payoffs? If you understand yourself to be part of a sojourning community, if you understand yourself to be part of a company of sojourners in a foreign land, how is that going to affect how you live? Yeah. Yeah, isn't it tempting to make, you know, even our homes an idol, right? We love our homes. They're places of sojourn and, you know, of comfort and of, of uh, you know, oasis, right? Um, that's a good thing to enjoy your home, to make your home that kind of welcoming place and to open it to others and um, impart that rest to them too. Um, but we don't want to make an idol out of it, right? We don't want to hold it so tightly, that when God says, I would like for you to go to the mission field and tell others about me, we're like, but God, I really want to stay here in my home. <laughs> yeah, so we want to hold things lightly. What else? If we understand ourselves to be sojourners, how does that metaphor impact us? Yeah. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Yeah, that's right. Isn't that great, right? Like um, when we're seeing really discouraging stuff around us and um, some of our brothers and sisters are in countries where everything has just gone completely crazy, like Haiti. Um, Isn't it encouraging that even amidst basically hell on earth in terms of the, you know, the political chaos of a place like that, um, that we have a better country, a heavenly one, right? And this is our sojourning place that God has put us for a time, but not permanently. Yeah, yeah, Ryan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it would be, it would be a, <clears throat> a misapplication of this metaphor to say, well, why polish brass on a sinking ship? And um, we're just a passing through, so, um, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe it'll all end in fire tomorrow, so don't, don't even really work on caring for the place where God has you. Rather, considering Joseph, like, what did he do? I mean, he basically saved the world, <laughs> you know, through his uh, providing food for everybody, and he built up the city, the city of man, which is Egypt. Um, 
and brought great honor to God. But at the same time, when he was dying, he said, um, as for my bones, they're going elsewhere, right? <laughs> Take my bones with you to the promised land, because that's really where I belong, right? Even Egypt, which I've invested so much in, is just my sojourning place. Good. Yeah, I think sojourners in a foreign land, this is a metaphor that has largely been lost by the American church. Um, there's been this sense of, like, um, you know, America as the promised land, um, and this idea of confusing, basically, the realm of America with the kingdom of God. Um, and we love America. I mean, this is a wonderful country. What, what wonderful freedoms and prosperity we've enjoyed here, and how we should be caring for this country and not checking out. Um, indeed, many of your callings will be to build up this country uh, for the glory of God. But at the same time, let's not forget that we are sojourners and exiles, and our citizenship is in heaven, um, not in America. Our hope is not in this country. Um, good, let's talk about another family, or another metaphor, the family. Um, the church is God's family. Now, this is really great, right? Because when you think of a kingdom and you think of, like, you know, the political kind of structures that that implies, Jesus as king, you can maybe miss something if you don't talk about also this metaphor of God as family. Every Christian is a child, a brother or sister in the family. We're all relatives. Jesus is the older brother. And we are joint heirs of the kingdom of God. If, if, an, if a son, he says in um, both Galatians and Romans, if a son, then an heir. So to be a child isn't just to be loved and treasured. It is also to be an heir of the kingdom. So um, here are just a few other parallels. Um, the parallel metaphor is the church is God's darling boy. So um, uh, this is sort of just taking the collective idea of like a bunch of children and making it um, one. But if you look with me, this is one of my favorite um, passages in the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 1. It's just, he says it in passing, but it's just so wonderful. Um, he t he's reviewing like all the, uh, the things God did for them in the wilderness and um, he's saying, don't forget how God goes before you, and he'll fight for you. This is about talking about entering the promised land, just as he did for you in the Egypt before your eyes. And um, in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carries you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. So you pick, picture God, and here's like this little, little tiny guy. Maybe he's like six years old or something, and he's walking, saying, Dad, I'm getting really tired of walking. What's the dad going to do? This, here's this dear little guy. He picks him up, and he carries him through the wilderness. Later in the book of Jeremiah, after the son has grown up, he's become the total prodigal son. He, uh, Israel is like the ultimate prodigal son in the Old Testament. What does it say in Jeremiah 31? It's pretty incredible. Um, Jeremiah 31, um, 18 through 20. And actually, before that, yeah, so in verse 9, Jeremiah 31, 9, he says, I am a father to Israel, and if, if Ephraim is my firstborn. In other words, he's still my boy. And then look 
in verse 18, I heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back, then I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. So that's Ephraim's speech, and it's basically the same thing as what the prodigal son says in the, in, in the far-off land. He's like, oh man, I have totally done wrong. And then God speaks, verse 20, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? And the question is, do I still love him as my little dear boy? As often as I spoke against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. Surely I will have mercy on him, or the word there actually is compassion. Surely I will have compassion on him. So we are God's dear boy. Still. Um, Back in Exodus, he said, let my son go. We're still his dear boy. Um, That's why God sent us sent his son to save us. So what are some practical payoffs of thinking of the church as God's dear boy, the church as God's family? How does this metaphor help us? This is a big one. (laughs) There's a lot of payoff here. How How should it change how you view the other people here? When you think about the church as a family. Yeah, Phyllis? Yeah. And, like, how, how would that change, like, how you would view your brothers and sisters? Like, yeah, you care for them. You're, you you want to you know them. Like, you, you want to hear how they're doing, right? Um, you don't want to just come here, kind of get your spiritual encouragement, see you later, right? You want to know each other, right? How are you doing? Um, you could think of it as, like, a weekly family reunion, what's happening here. Right, um, and not only that, but we care for each other. Like, look, if your if your brother or your you know somebody is like in trouble, you're not going to say, "Well, uh, good luck to you." <laughs> you know, you'd be like, "Hey, what do you need, man? Like, can I help you out?" Um, yeah. That's right. Yeah, we don't let we don't let family members go hungry. Right? And so we even have like the deacons, like an entire officer of a church dedicated to making sure the people of God are cared for um, as a family. And even just thinking about a family, like there's, all, there's so much payoff from this metaphor, but like what, what happens in a family? Well, there, there's diversity, right? There's, uh, there's male and female, of course, but then there's also age diversity, right? And how do the age diversity, how does that play out? Well, the older people are investing in the younger people. And so in Titus 2, it talks about how all the older ladies are to be like spiritual mothers to the younger ladies. And all the older men, likewise, should be like spiritual fathers to the younger guys. In other words, if you've been walking with the Lord Jesus for a while, you should be thinking, how can I invest in and bless my younger sisters in Christ or my younger brothers in Christ um, and encourage them? Um, we should also honor our father and the stewards of his house. So Titus 1 says that the officers of the church are like the stewards of God's family. Um, we want to, just as a family has structure and the, you know, the husband's the head of the house and um, children are supposed to honor their father and mother, um, there's, there should be honoring 
within the house of God. Um, and also, I think this is really important. No one should feel like an orphan or a barren person. Isaiah 54, this is, these are pretty awesome passages. Isaiah 54, 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. In Isaiah 56, 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, you know, eunuch, somebody who can't have kids, right? Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Nobody should think of themselves, regardless of their particular like family situation, whether you're single or you know, don't have kids or whatever. You should never think of yourself as like this isolated, you know, as the eunuch says, dry tree. Well, like, well, everybody else is, is blessed, but I, I don't have a family. Well, yes, you do. You have a family. <laughs> this is your family. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, um, this is supposed to be a redeemed family. And, and, you know, sometimes the church can let us down because we are still sinners, right? But what's supposed to be going on here? Um, A redeemed dynamic of love and grace, right? That the grace that Jesus has shown us, making us part of his family, adopting us as his children, uh, that should impact how and how we relate to each other in love. Good. So the church is a family. The church is also a bride, and Jesus is the groom. And it's very important that we say the church collectively and not individually is the bride. We don't want to say we're all brides of Christ because God is a monogamist. <laughs> he has one bride. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's this really fascinating book called The, the Church Impotent, which was about um, basically when you start f- sort of talking about individual Christians as like... Um, brides of Christ and sort of Jesus is my boyfriend kind of mentality, um, it leads to all kinds of problems um, in the church. So we are collectively the bride, all of us together, and yet here's one of these places where a story unfolds. Israel is the bride. Remember Israel, we're connected to them. Um, It's one church throughout the ages. Um, Israel, what happened? They were married to God at Sinai. That was their wedding day when they took vows to each other, just like we take vows. And then what happened? God came down in the fire, and he dwelt with Israel. They cohabited together and had sweet union together in worship. And yet what happened? Israel went and committed adultery with other gods. She worshiped other gods and was joined to them. And so God divorced Israel. His wife, that's what it says in uh, Jeremiah 2, it's the exact words, gave them the writ of divorce, sent them away. And yet, even when he said, you are not my people and I am not your God, he also said, I will woo her in the wilderness and I'll bring her back. And how did he do that? Well, he caused both husband and wife to die and then to be raised. There's a misprint there. Um, To die on the cross and then raised when Jesus was raised. 
So we are now raised anew. How could the harlot ever become a virgin again? It's like impossible, right? Well, except for when the harlot dies and then is raised anew. And that's what actually happened in the cross. Romans 7, 1 through 4, we read that. It's pretty amazing. So that 2 Corinthians eleven two, 2, Paul says, I have engaged you to be married to, you know, I, I have cared for you over as a virgin, uh, committed you as a virgin to Christ. I'm totally botching <laughs> that one. But he says the church is a virgin, spotless virgin. So we are engaged to be married and looking forward to our wedding day on the last day. The last day will be the greatest wedding day ever. And the wedding feast of the Lamb will be the greatest wedding party ever. And so we're really stoked about that. And a related, metaf- related metaphors is just, you know, you think about how a husband feels about his bride. Like, wow, this is my treasure. We are God's treasure. We are his treasured possession. This is a really cool word in Hebrew. It keeps coming up. Um, it's repeated in 1 Peter 2. I should have included that on there. Where he says, you are God's treasured possession. We are God's inheritance. What's God looking forward to about the end of the age? He's looking forward to getting us, all of us, together as one who will truly love him. Like, the, why did God redeem? It makes no sense unless he truly wants fellowship and unity with us, the way a husband wants tre- fellowship and unity with his bride. So what are some practical payoffs of thinking of the church as a bride, of thinking of ourselves as the bride of Jesus? How does that change how you view the church? How does it change how you think about yourself? Yeah, yeah, the joy of, of serving and loving one another simply out of love, right? And that's, that's a key thing of what we really need in our relationship with Jesus. Like, there needs to be not just like, okay, he's my king, I need to obey him, but he's, he's the divine bridegroom, like, he's the groom of the church, I want to obey him, I want to love him, right? Um, good, what else? What, how, if you think about yourself as part of this great bride of Christ, how does it change you? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, the joy of knowing that now we're in a relationship where we are forever married. God will never send us away. Because of the Spirit of Christ in us, um, God has given us um, His wedding ring, uh, you know, His engagement ring, as it were. Um, That's the word for um, engagement ring in modern Greek is actually the same word that's in um, Ephesians 1 for the Holy Spirit. Um, He's the pledge of our inheritance. Um, and so, yeah, like, because of the decisive power of the work of Christ, we will never be cast out. Um, yeah, the, the way in which our marriages are meant to be oases, oases of love, when, like, other people are really at us, you're like, here's this spouse who's still going to love me, right? That's, that's what God is for us. And, and even these other things, too, like, um, we should shudder at the evil of sin. Like, Adultery is terrible. Like, it's so evil because what? You're, you're betraying the trust of somebody who loves you and who committed themselves to you exclusively. 
Like, we, we should just absolutely shudder at adultery. And if we get that level of, like, awfulness and of betrayal, that should be how we feel about sin. Because that would be, def, you know, denying our divine bridegroom. Um, yeah. That's right. Yeah, we should want to obey simply for Jesus' sake alone, because we love him, right? And I also have on here just, you know, our culture makes such an idol out of sex and the opposite, you know, uh, relationships with the opposite sex. We should just remember, like, that's a wonderful gift, and the Bible is, just, is totally unabashed about saying, wow, what an amazing gift. Like the entire Song of Solomon, it's like saying, whoa, God has really blessed human race with this wonderful gift of how a husband and wife can be one together. But let's not idolize it like our culture does. Um, it's just a picture. It's a shadow of something still greater. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, to, to obsess about relations, um, like sexual relations, would be to like, obsess about the preview when the real movie is still to come, our union with God. It's meant to point us to something way better, right? So let's not, let's not misplace our priorities, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there can be these toxic dynamics there. Yeah. Yeah, he's still going to be pursuing us. Yeah. Yeah, the ideal spouse. Wouldn't it be awesome to be married to the ideal spouse? Because we all know that we're sinners and our, our spouses are sinners, right? Well, guess what? The church actually is. <laughs> you know, a spouse who will literally never let us down. And who so love us that he'll create in us the faithfulness that we will never let him down. Um, that's the power of the Spirit um, in the new creation. So that's worth looking forward to. <laughs> Um, turn it over. We have a bunch more metaphors. I'm definitely going to have to be uh, engaging warp speed here. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, what else is the church? The church is the temple where his glory dwells. Israel became a house that was defile, defiled with false worship, so God tore the building down. He said, I've, I've set you, Jeremiah, today over kings and over nations to destroy, to overthrow, to tear down. But then he says also to build. And so God has refounded us in Christ. So it says in Ephesians 2, Jesus is the cornerstone. Apostles and prophets of the New Testament are the foundation. And then what's going up, <clears throat> excuse me, on top of it, the superstructure. That would be us. We are now under construction. And pastors are builders who need to work with good materials. If not, our work will go up in flames. And already... The Holy Spirit has come down to fill us. That's the point of the pillars of fire on Pentecost. We are the temple now. 
pillars of fire. Where do we see that coming down on buildings? All over the place, you know, the tabernacle, the temple. Well, guess what? Now on you. You are the dwelling place of God. And there's other cool implications of this metaphor. You are the storage place of God's oracles. So, like, where did they store the Bible? Like, the, like, kind of, kind of the, the original copy? Stored in the temple. And all the copies are based on that. Um, and there's evidence um, that even in the second temple period, um, they were still storing kind of the, here's the, here's, like, the core copies on which all the other copies are based. Um, God instructed them to store it, uh, Deuteronomy 31, 26, next to the ark. Um, and so he says, Romans 3, 2, we are the stewards of the oracles of God. Um, the church now is that storage place of the oracles of God. Jude 3, um, we have received the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We are now the pillar and the support of the truth. Other metaphors, uh, but also building metaphors. Isn't that incredible? That we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the storage place of the oracles of God. Um, where, where does the Bible belong? Who, is, who, who owns the Bible? You know, there's a lot of secular scholars who would want to say the Bible is public domain. The Bible belongs to everybody. Everybody can interpret the Bible. The Bible says no. You want to understand the Bible? You need the Holy Spirit. No understanding the Bible unless you have the Holy Spirit. The Bible belongs to the church. We are the steward of the house. We are the steward of the oracles of God. It belongs to us to interpret and understand it and pass it on. Not to the academy. Not to the university. Um, so, um, we, we are the temple of God. We are also the flock of God's pasturage. Um, he is our shepherd, and as sheep, we are not terribly smart, and we need constant care. And so God gives us everything we need, and he protects us from harm. We just heard a wonderful sermon on that from Psalm 23. And this is, I was noticing this, um, I left off a ton of verses because of page space, but um, this is one of the ones that God keeps saying over and over and over again. So maybe this is a metaphor we really need to internalize, that we are just um, a bunch of sheep. We are also a beautiful plant. I love this stuff. I just feel like we need to hear more of this. Like, we are the glorious plant. Like, does anybody here love plants? Anybody love seeing um, plants grow? Does anybody love harvesting this time of year, the plants that you cultivated? Anybody love, like, um, seeing a plant that's thriving in all of its glory, and it's like being super abundant? Well, God is a gardener. And he loves his precious, beautiful plant. And so we're the plant. Jesus is the stem or the trunk, depending on what we're talking about, a tree or a vine or something. And there, there's, by the way, different uh, plants that he uses when he wants to emphasize different things. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, we are the branches. God planted us in good soil, but Israel did not yield good fruit. It says, Isaiah 5 in the, in the Song of the Vineyard, I've I, I made everything perfect for you. I built up the wall, and I made every, this beautiful vineyard. And guess what happened? You guys just yielded sour, sour grapes for me. So what am I going to do to my vineyard? Well, he breaks down the wall, Psalm 80. He causes the boar to go through. That's Babylon, destroys um, the vineyard. But he doesn't give up on the vineyard. 
he did uproot Israel. So again, Jeremiah 1.10, he has put him over um, Israel to uproot them. But then he has also put, them there to, put him there to plant. God replanted Israel in Christ as a fruitful vine. Now we're, we're, now we've been replanted. And we are now, this is really cool, Ezekiel 17, a towering cedar. So God transplanted from exile this cedar, which was um, the Davidic monarchy, the pe- kingdom of David. He planted it in the land. And what has happened? It, up, it grew up into enormous cedar tree, and it says the, tr- the birds of the air nest in its branches. Isn't it interesting then that when Jesus is talking about the cedar, or sorry, the, the mustard plant, he says it starts off small, this little seed. It then grows up to this beautiful big tree. Um, he calls it a tree even though it's actually a bush. What's he doing? He says the birds of the air come and nest in the branches of the mustard plant. And we're thinking to ourselves, Ezekiel 17, the cedar tree has become a mustard plant. The humble growth of the kingdom will lead to the birds nesting in the branches. That would be the nations. So we will be a glorious plant. And what is going on in here? All kinds of things pay off from this metaphor. Uh, We're going to derive our strength from God. We are organically one with each other. We need to be careful to bear fruit because branches that don't bear fruit are cut off. But we should also not be surprised at the discipline that comes upon us when Jesus prunes us, because he says, those that bear fruit, I prune. So what's happening when you're going through really hard stuff? God is pruning you. And so we should sink roots deep into the grace of God. We know we need to be connected to the trunk. So, so, so stay connected to the trunk. Um, lots of payoff from God, beautiful, God's beautiful plant. We are also God's army. Like the entire book of Numbers is about Israel as God's army. Joshua, the entire book is about the church as God's army. And guess what? It's even in the New Testament too. So you see Jesus coming on a white horse to judge the world. Who's behind him? It says an entire army dressed in white linen. Where have we seen people dressed in white linen in the book of Revelation? The church. We come uh, behind our champion. The champion has won the battle, so you think of like D-Day. That was the decisive turning point of World War II. What happens after that? Well, the victory, in a sense, is already there, but there's still more to be done to um, solidify and, and realize that victory. And so we fight, fight in the victory of Jesus. Jesus is the champion. He decisively won the battle. We now put on his armor, the full armor of God. It's um, the armor that God himself wore, wears. Um, he teaches our hands to fight. And so we should remember the church is an army. We, are, we need to have a militant mindset in this life. Um, we should be prepared to die in our boots. Like you're never going to have to stop fighting sin. Um, you're you're going to be fighting sin to the very end of your days. That may sound tough, but guess what? The church militant will one day be the church triumphant. Um, I'm just going through these quickly, but I want to get your feedback um, as we get towards the end here. Um, Be thinking if any of these are striking. We are also God's choir. Did you know that Jesus is the worship leader? Hebrews 2.12. I'll just read this one really quick. This is pretty cool. Um, It says that literally Jesus is leading us in singing. So as a man, 
what's, what's Jesus' duty as a man? To worship God. He does. He is God, but he also worships. It says this, this is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, Hebrews 2.12, I will tell of your name, the name of God, to my brothers. So who's the brothers? Us. So again, that's where I got the idea of Jesus' older brother, right? I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Who's the I? Jesus. I will sing your praise. Jesus leads us in song. And we sing not just together, but it says in Revelation 5 and other places that we are joining the song that's going on in heaven. When we sing and worship, we are being lifted up into the heavenly places and singing in the heavenly places with everybody, with Jesus as our worship leader. And then I had to say this one. This one's one of my favorites. We are God's party. Anybody who thinks that church is kind of like boring or that, I don't know, it's dull to be a Christian, needs to acquaint themselves with all these verses. I put the most verses in here using precious space on my handout to try to impart to you the importance of partying to God. Let me just read to you some of this. Like, God puts on the ultimate feast. Isaiah 25, looking forward to the last day. On this mountain, Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Did we mention wine? Did we mention rich food? (laughs) He says it a couple times, right? Um, It's going to be awesome. In fact, in the Old Covenant, he instituted a number of occasions where he said basically, um, yeah, I want you to bring all the stuff I'm going to give you in the land. Like, it's going to be super fruitful. I want you to bring those, and I want you to bring them before me, and I want you to party before me. Literally. That's what it says. Deuteronomy 14. It's incredible. Take the tithe. Bring it to the place where I establish your name. Deuteronomy 14. And he says, if the place is too far, then fine, sell the stuff for money, put the money in your hand, go to the place the Lord your God chooses, spend the money for whatever you desire. Look what he says, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, that's party food. Whatever your appetite craves, this is God talking. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Do you think God wants his people to rejoice? He does. We are his party. And all those verses in Isaiah are like, party verses, where basically God's saying, when I save you, you will rejoice. There will be eschatological partying before me. Yeah, wedding feast, exactly. And that's the specific kind of party. That's right. It's a wedding party. It's a party uh, celebrating a union, right? And so when we have the Lord's Supper, yes, you may only get that tiny little cracker, and yes, there may be that tiny little, little you know, thimbleful of wine. But I want you to think of it as like the appetizers of the feast. I want you to think of it as there is an entire goblet of wine in that little bit of wine. Because what it's imparting, the joy of knowing God, is the glory of rejoicing before him. And so, practical payoffs. No moping. No being a party pooper. 
death to Gnosticism. What do I mean when I say that? What's Gnosticism? Can anybody explain that? It's not apathy. It is connected to legalism. What's Gnosticism? Say again? Yeah, it's this idea of like there's going to be this, uh, well, it's a false teaching about how if you really understand stuff, you'd have this secret knowledge of God that only these choice people have. And the idea is that the spiritual realm is really what matters, and your body is something you're trying to escape. Gnosticism teaches your body is bad, your spirit is good. That's the secret knowledge, right? And the Bible says, uh, God made your body, and when he finished making your body, he said, your body's good. And so this creation is good, very good. He created it to reveal his glory. So rejoice, party to the glory of God. And this is obviously not an invitation to gluttony or to drunkenness or any of that kind of idolatry of um, food. What, did it, what is it an invitation to? It's an invitation to holy joy, to realizing God loves us and he's given us all good things to enjoy. That's First Timothy 6. Therefore, let us eat and drink with thankfulness to the glory of God looking forward to the great feast. Other metaphors that I left out, by the way, I ran out of space on the handout. I could have put way more in here. But did you know that we are God's eaglets? Take a look at Deuteronomy 32.11. Related metaphor is we are God's little chickies, and he's the hen covering us. We are God's helmet. We're also God's scepter, that verse says, which is pretty awesome. We are God's gardeners. We are God's ark, that safe place that brings us through the waters of judgment. We are God's magnificent sash that's meant to cling to God and bring him glory. We are God's basket of delicious figs that he's looking forward to eating. All kinds of metaphors. I wish I could give them all to you and talk about them all to you all day long. What happens when a church loses its sense of the glory of all these things? Why, why, why did I share all these things with you? Like, I'm hoping to give you a sense of the glory of what the church is. When you see all the collage together, I hope you get like a sense of, whoa, the church is amazing. What happens when we lose that sense of identity? Yeah, Logan? Yeah. Yeah, the church just seems kind of like humdrum. We, I don't know, lose our sense of what we're supposed to be doing and play bingo or something, you know? <laughs> like we... We, we stop, stop being uh, all these things, God's temple, God's beautiful plant, and we start like just sort of being like a social club, or, and then everybody's like, why are we here? <laughs> yeah, Mason. Yeah, yeah, the thing you got to do instead of the thing you get to do, um, that like we should be stoked to be here and like tasting heaven, Right? As opposed to like, well, better go to church today. I wish I could be doing other stuff. <laughs> That's not how God sees it. Yeah, Dale? Yeah. Yeah, like if you, if you get the glory of being part of the church, you'd be saying, hey, you need to be a part of this to the non-Christian friend or family member. Like, you don't want to miss out on this. Just like you'd say, hey, that restaurant, 
they make really good food. You should go there. Um, like, we're always witnessing to things we love. Do you love the church? I hope you do. And I hope you see the way the church, God views the church. Like, it's pretty outstanding. It's pretty out of this world. Um, we should see the church the same way, um, even when we struggle to be all these things because of our sin. Well, let's have a word of prayer in closing. Lord, thank you so much for the glory of the church. Thank you for all these metaphors, and we know that these are hardly all of the metaphors. And we thank you for your love and the love that's shown to us in the church. Um, we thank you that we get to be part of a family. We thank you that we get to have you as our father, and we get to have you as our king, and also as our gardener, and also as our champion. And that, Lord, in all these things, you are showing us the magnificence of your love. And so we pray, help us to treasure the church like you do. Help us to rejoice in our identity and help us to live into this identity through the way we treat one another and the way in which we witness to this watching world. Help us never to lose sight of you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.